A God once said, not the God, a God once said, I'll take blood and mix dirt to form mud and I'll sculpt flesh and I'll form the first man. At the dawn of history, according to the most ancient of civilizations, Lord Marduk formed man from the mud, created from dust and the blood of his vanquished divine enemies. Divine blood, but not divine image. Humanity was created to serve the needs of the gods, to till the soil, to grind wheat, to bake bread, to bring gods meat to eat and wine to drink. One day, according to the story, we grew too loud. The cacophony of our squabbling and bickering drove the gods to despair, so they flooded the earth. But the gods relented when they realised that that would mean no one would bring them food anymore. And so we survived. Not only survived, we thrived. The gods created cities for us to live in and towers that reached the heavens on which we could worship. They gave us kings to enforce justice and to keep us in line. They gave us technology to make us more productive and arts and music to amuse us and keep us placated. If they made our lives a little bit less miserable, they reasoned, we would be quieter and more willing to bring them food to eat. Uh, This is the uh, account of origins from the ancient Babylonian civilization. It actually predates, this account of origin predates even Abraham. It's very old. Uh, Many cultures have origin stories like this, don't they? Uh, The ones from ancient Babylon are strikingly similar, I think you will have noticed, to the ones in the Bible, uh, because you've been studying Genesis together. Uh, There's a reason for that. That's not to be unexpected in some ways, and a lot's been made about that, but um, that's not actually the point I want to make. The point I want to talk about is that it's the job of origin stories like this to explain the world that we live in. Uh, We're not just talking about where the world comes from in, in physical terms. We're also talking about who we are in it as people, Uh, who we are as people related to each other, how we should live, how we should engage, uh, how we should think about God, how we should think about the world around us, how we should think about our place in the world. All of these things are driven by our understanding of where we come from. Our culture, of course, has origin stories as well, doesn't it? Can you think of what our origin stories are? Uh, They're not written in tablets of mud, like the stories about Marduk. Uh, They're not chiseled on the side of pyramids either. Uh, They're written in a different language. They're written in the language of physics and mathematics and anthropology and biology and biochemistry. Uh, So obviously, in some ways, the origin stories that we have are very different than the origin stories in either the Bible or in ancient cultures. Uh, But in some ways, they're quite similar too because they do a similar thing. They tell us who we are. They tell us what our place in the universe is. They tell us how we should relate to each other. They tell us how we should relate to the world around us. In the end, origins and ethics are linked, aren't they? 
And those stories that we tell ourselves, they matter. These origin stories are similar in other ways as well. And this is actually pan-cultural. Origin stories all over the world tend to share an assumption. And this is what I want to think about with you this morning. Because if you think about it carefully, you realize it's not an assumption that the Bible shares. Everybody's origin stories tell the same kind of thing because they share an assumption. But it's not an assumption that the Bible shares. The assumption is this. That what we see in the world around us is the way that it was made to be. What we see in the world around us is the way that it was made to be. That's the assumption. But you will have noticed, I think, because you did Genesis 3 last week, last week, you will have noticed that that's not how the Bible sees the world. According to the Bible, we live in a world gone wrong. And if you think about the world that way, it actually changes how you understand everything else. And today we're going to pick up the story from the beginning of Genesis chapter 4 and we're going to see the way that this plays out in how the Bible helps us to think about the world around us. It would be good for you to have a Bible open. We are going to work through Genesis chapter 4 and this story of Cain and Abel. Uh, So... Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. There's a wordplay going on here that escapes us because we're reading in English. Cain is a Hebrew word. Uh, It's a word that actually means to acquire or to buy. It's a word that you'd hear in a marketplace. If you went down to Westfield, it would be the word of Westfield, if you spoke Hebrew. it means to, um, to, to buy. It's a marketplace word, okay? So um, that's what his name means. And Eve doesn't say, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. She actually, very strangely, says, with the help of the Lord, I have acquired a man. Mothers don't talk like that. Uh, <laughs> did any of you when, you, when you had your first child, say, oh, I've acquired one? <laughs> Uh, It's a very weird thing for her to say. Uh, Cain, in so many ways, is the man of the market, so to speak. And we don't know why. Uh, We can understand the wordplay at the moment, Cain, market, yes. But why name him Cain in the first place? We don't know yet, uh, but it will become clearer as the story goes on. His brother Abel also has a very interesting name. Verse 2, she gives birth to his brother. Uh, The word Abel is a word that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes a lot. Do you know the book of Ecclesiastes? Quite famous because vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Or uh, it's translated differently. It's a little bit tricky to translate. Vanity or emptiness or fleetingness or transientness or pointlessness. Um, But uh, that word, not vanity like in a mirror, not like pride, vanity like uselessness. Uh, That's Abel's name. That's a weird name to give a child too. (laughs) Um, But it's foreboding for the story, isn't it? Because Abel's not destined to have such a big impact on the world, is he? Uh, So if we've got the man of the market, let's call Abel the man of the moment. Abel, verse 2, we're told, kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. 
In the course of time, Cain bought some fruits from the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. Interesting. It's not really 100% clear what's going on here. Uh, The question that you have is the same question I have, and all the commentaries, by the way, have the question too. We want to know why it is that Abel's offering is better than Cain's offering. Uh, It's an interesting question because it's not one that Genesis actually answers. It just doesn't tell us. Some people think that it's about the meat being offered instead of the grain being offered, but it can't really be that. As you read the Old Testament, you'll see that there are grain offerings and that there are meat offerings, and they're all perfectly fine. They're just different kinds of offerings in different situations, and there's no problem with with Cain bringing grain. It's not that. Uh, Some people say it's because Cain's offering is perfunctory, uh, whereas Abel's is heartfelt which might be the case or it might not, but it's also not what Genesis says. Uh, We're kind of just guessing at that point. Hebrews 11 does tell us that it's because Abel offered with faith and Cain didn't offer with faith. Uh, So that's kind of Hebrews' point, and that's good. Uh, That's the point Hebrews wants to make about it. But that's also not the point of Genesis. That's not what's being said here. The only thing we're told here is that God preferred Abel's offering for some reason. There must have been a good reason because it's God, but we don't know what the reason is. Uh, I don't know why after the fall we would expect to be able to discern the mind of God so easily anyway. Perhaps that's part of the point, that God is just a little bit mysterious now because we've broken that relationship with him. Uh, The question is natural. We want to know why Cain's offering was bad because we don't want to end up doing the same thing. Uh, And fair enough, that's good motivation. Don't be like Cain, writes the Apostle John, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder his brother? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So fair enough, don't be evil. Uh, That's a good lesson. Uh, it's um, It's also not the point of this story. The point of this story is that in this new kind of post-fall messed up world, everything's not functioning how it's supposed to. That's really the point. This wouldn't have happened back in chapter 2. You know, hypothetically, had Abel and Cain been in chapter 2, this wouldn't have happened. They would have known what pleased God. They would have been able to do it. They would have wanted to do it. There wouldn't have been jealousy and enmity between the brothers. It would have been fine. But something's changed now. Now, there's a new player in town. Verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do what's right, then sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. This is the first mention of sin in the Bible. It's not the first sin. You saw the first sin last week. Uh, It's the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible, though. What is it? What is sin? Even allowing for the metaphorical language here, I I think you can see it seems to be more than just 
you know, law-breaking. It's more than just breaking a rule or a law, more than just, you know, missing a mark or slipping. Uh, It's more than making a mistake, isn't it? Uh, This is its introduction to us. When it's first mentioned in the Bible, it's not really an action or something you do at all, is it? It's not an activity. It's a beast. It's like this raw force that's inescapable and malicious and lurking, you know, like a giant cat. Stalking its prey. Have you ever been stalked? I've been stalked. Um, You know, I was safe. I was on the other side of a fence. But have you seen a cat, like, in the backyard stalking a bird or a mouse or something? Have you seen the look it gets in its that intense focus that it just doesn't even shift and it kind of hunches up, you know? Do you know that? So imagine, like, the cat weighs 200 kilos, I've been looked at like I'm dinner. Uh, I was safe, as I said, but it still made me nervous, even being on the other side of the fence, still made me nervous. Um, It's that kind of metaphor. Sin, of course, it's not really out there. It is a metaphor. Sin is not something that we could attack with a sword if we were brave enough. But it's more than just disobedience or making a mistake. Sin is a force. It's something that we have to wrestle with and it drives us and it motivates us. It's about our will and about our feelings and our thoughts. And it's those things that we say to ourselves inside of our heads that, you know, make everything else we do have a reason for doing it. And it's, it's what we think about other people and what we think about God and what we think about the world. And it comes out of us. In our actions, it desires to have us, says God. And from this point on, throughout the entire rest of the Bible, in fact, throughout the entire rest of history, sin is going to color every single human activity and action forever. Not forever, but you know what I mean. Things will never be again as they were created to be. It desires to have you, says God, but you must rule over it. And that turns out to be easier said than done, doesn't it? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, verse 8, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So driven by jealousy, Cain is devoured by sin. Disobedience leads to jealousy. Jealousy leads to murder. And Abel, the man of the moment, his moment passes. And the first mention of sin becomes the first death. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? You've seen this before too. This is what sin's like. You saw the blame shifting last week. Do you remember? Um, What have you done? The woman that you gave me, do you remember God, gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's not my fault, it's her fault. And if it's not her fault, it's your fault. Okay, am I my brother's keeper? A little bit glib for the situation. Um, But, you know, God discerns the truth of the situation. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, 
your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground which opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Actually, Cain's curse is not that much worse than Adam's curse, if you stop and think about it. Um, Cain was a farmer. That's how he was introduced to us. And now the ground will not yield its crops to him. Do you remember last week, though? By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat of it. Uh, It's not really a lot worse. Cast from the presence of God. Adam also cast from the presence of God. Uh, And called to wander the earth. Cain, of course, doesn't like this. Verse 13, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Perhaps my guilt is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. There is a little bit of irony in that response though uh, because Cain refused to be his brother's keeper but now he expects everybody else to be his keeper. Uh, Whoever finds me will kill me but remarkably, and this is really the pattern of Genesis, isn't it? Remarkably, following tragedy, following sin, there's grace as well. And as you work through the rest of Genesis 1 to 11, you'll see this pattern just over and over again. God responds to sin with grace. The Lord says to him, verse 15, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over, and the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him will kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod, by the way, is the Hebrew word for wanderer. Uh, So the restless wanderer wanders in the land of wandering. Uh, um, It's it's a very weird sentence in Hebrew. It's like nod, 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 nod. It's not quite that. Uh, But by the grace of God, he's protected from the revenge that he might have otherwise suffered uh, from, you know, presumably his family members because he's just killed their brother. Uh, And for him, life goes on. Uh, We tend to think of this as the end of the Cain and Abel story. Uh, Of course it's not. We didn't finish the reading there. We continued the reading into the list of names Because actually the list of names is going to help us to understand what we should do with this Cain and Abel story. And I know that that seems unlikely, uh, but that's that's how this is going to work. And this is part of why that list of names is there in the chapter in the first place. Abel's story finished here, but Cain's story didn't finish here. Remember, he's the man of the market. And from the man of the market comes all kinds of human activity. Cain, verse 17, we're told, made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and named it after his son Enoch. This is the first city in the Bible. There are lots of firsts at the beginning. This is the first city in the Bible. And notice that it didn't descend from the heavens. Do you remember the myth I told you at the start? Where did the city come from? It came from the gods to keep us in order. Right? But it didn't. No, the city didn't descend from the heavens. It wasn't given to us by the gods. It wasn't created by, capital G, God. The city, the polis, our political life, the whole political shape of our life comes from us. 
Political life in the Bible comes from Cain. The man of the market is the father of human political and economic activity. Uh, And as we read the rest of the Bible, we'll see that sin crouches at the door there as well. Our communities, our cities are not the way that they were created to be because we are not the way we were created to be. I'm not going to read every verse of the names. I'll skip to the highlights. Verse 19, Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other named Zillah. Adar gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. So our, uh, our, our economic and agricultural lives. Our culture too, verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Again, notice, culture, art, music was not a gift from the gods to keep us entertained. Where does culture, art, and music come from? It comes from us. And our technology. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron, verse 22. Again, not a gift from the gods to keep us more productive, It comes from us. None of these things are divine, as the Babylonians thought, as the Greeks thought, as many cultures have thought. They aren't pure and untainted gifts from the gods that descend tabula rasa and they're all wonderful. These things are good. They're not evil. But they're profoundly human. And because they're human... They're not the way that they were created to be either. Behind all of these things, behind every human heart, sin crouches at the door, waiting to devour us. It twists everything. It's not actually so nice to talk about. It's not really a very nice subject to preach about. It taints our communities, doesn't it? with dislocation and jealousy and rivalry and enmity and strife. And what should be good, community, good thing, what should be good turns sour. How often? It mars all of our greatest creative and, um, and our, all of our greatest creative activity because we get proud. And, and what should be celebrated because it's wonderful, we end up being jealous of. It twists things and it prods and it defaces things. It's like a beast. And we've never mastered it. We've never mastered it. In every case throughout the whole of human history, sin has led to death. The blood of Abel, vanity, everything is vanity. It's a sad word, and it's a sad way of thinking about the world. But because of grace, by God's grace, it's not the last word. The last word is better. The chapter actually finishes with a different note, verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. 
And one day, another man will come from the line of Seth. He'll also be murdered, but his blood will speak a better word. Because his blood, through his blood, he will bear our guilt and suffer the wrath that should have been poured out on Cain for killing his brother and suffer the wrath that should come on us for our sin. But he doesn't do it so that everything could go back to the way it was. The world is not going to return to what it was created to be. That's not what redemption is. And this is part of the surprise. These things that have happened, the cultures and the music and the art and the technology, they're not going to be undone so that we can go back to what we should have been in the beginning. They're going to be renewed and restored and perfected so that we can be something better. We read Hebrews 12 together. We haven't come back to the old world. Actually, we've come to something better than what would have happened if we'd gone back. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the Christian hope for our world, for our communities, for our cultures, our technology, our arts, our music, our politics, our cities, our environments. The Christian hope for our world is redemption, one through blood that was spilt. It does more than save us. There's no way back. We can't get back in the garden. It does more than save us from this beast called sin. It renews us, it restores us, it changes us, it shapes us, and it perfects us into the image that is far greater than Adam ever was. And when it does that, the world will still not be what it was created to be, but it will be better. We're going to pray. Father, thinking about, um, thinking about sin isn't actually very much fun, but we are reminded that it is very much in us and we are very much sinful. Uh, in part, that makes us guilty and in part, that makes us pitiable. And thank you that you did take pity and that you had grace and showed mercy and dealt with our guilt and our sin and that you would restore us and remake us into the image of your Son. We pray by your Spirit you will be doing that in us, even now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.